Why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? There was once an American author and critic by the name of Henry Louis Mencken who was an irreverent and vicious cynic to the end of his life. As far as we know, he never did come to know the Lord. But he once declared, and I quote, Either Jesus arose from the dead, or he did not. If he did, then Christianity becomes plausible. If he did not, then it is sheer nonsense. Either Jesus arose from the dead, or he did not. If he did, then Christianity becomes plausible. If he did not, then it is sheer nonsense. I can only conclude that he came to the latter conclusion. But if he did, he was wrong. Because it's not nonsense. Nor is it a false and powerless message. Because our Lord Jesus Christ stated during his lifetime that he would not only die and be buried, but that he would rise again on the third day. If he did not rise again, then he was a liar. And those who confirmed what Jesus did, rising from the dead, such as all of the apostles and others that recorded it, they also were liars. The Lord not only was able, but he did make good on his promise. He was raised from the dead. If Christ was not raised, and we learned this this morning as we were studying in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if the Lord in fact was not raised, then certain things are true. One is that we as Christians are still in our sins. You thought you were saved, didn't you? You thought that your sins were forgiven. You thought that all your sins had been taken away by Christ, that he suffered for your sins, and that he removed them by his atoning blood. But if he didn't rise from the dead, you're wrong. You're still in your sins. That's what Paul said. Again, if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is literally a waste of time and breath. We're wasting our time meeting together for worship if Christ is not risen. And there are various other conclusions that Paul reached that we read about this morning in 1 Corinthians 15. If, if Christ is not risen, this is so. If Christ is not risen, this is not so. But we're here to tell you that Christ is risen indeed. And he is alive forevermore. And he also holds the keys of hell and of death. Paul, in the midst of his great polemic on the resurrection, said, 1 Corinthians 15 verse 19, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. What a miserable bunch of people we are, if we've only got hope in this life. But you see, we have hope for that which is beyond this life. We have hope for the time 
that is yet to come. The Bible speaks about the life that now is and of that which is to come. And we have hope in the life that is yet to come because of the resurrection. Now Jesus, when he was upon the earth, he gave this great statement, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Matthew 16 verse 18. That prediction was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost when the nucleus of that Christian church was brought into being. And of course, it's a fact of history that belief in the resurrection brought the church into its birth. That is the New Testament church. And when the people of God dispersed from Jerusalem to go throughout the earth, and much of that happened because of persecution, what was the message that was the driving power behind the advance of the church? It was the doctrine of the risen Christ. This is the message that they preached. This was the driving force behind the advance of the church. If Christ had not, in fact, physically and really risen from the dead, the church that bears his name, because it's the church of Christ, would have perished long ago. Because you think of the number of fierce attacks that there have been upon the church. Social, political and intellectual. People have written against Bible doctrine. They have outlawed Bible doctrine. They have punished Christians. They have imprisoned Christians. They have burned the Bible. They have put people to death for believing in the resurrection. And this great litany of persecutions that I could speak about tonight in church history. The fact that it has not destroyed the church is proof, again, that the resurrection message cannot be destroyed. There are times when the church has reached a low ebb. There are places in the world where it became so rare to meet a Christian that the church appeared to be doomed and dead. And as someone said, the grave diggers, like Hume, Voltaire and others, were busy. But always like her Savior, the church has risen from the grave and rolled away the stone. The church still is advancing today. Because Christ is risen. Jesus is alive. Now what I want to talk about tonight is about the necessity of the resurrection. You see, as Paul made it clear in that great chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection is necessary for certain other things to follow. But as you look at the entire doctrine of the resurrection and the teaching about the resurrection, there are a range of different things that make it a necessity. And I want to talk about those tonight with the Lord's help. First of all, there is the matter of corroboration. That's a big word. Corroboration. Sometimes when someone gives evidence in court, that evidence needs some corroboration. In other words, it needs some other people to back up the evidence and say, yes, that's right, that's what happened. And that's called corroborating evidence. The resurrection was necessary in order to corroborate 
the claims of Jesus Christ. See, during the lifetime of the Lord, he made certain stupendous claims. Now, anyone making claims such as he made, if they weren't correct, was a fool, frankly. I know it's irreverent even to think about it, but that's the truth. If the Lord was making these claims, and those claims were ridiculous, and there was nothing to them, then it means that he himself is a fool. And of course he's not a fool. He's God manifest in flesh. But in his life, by his words, and by his miracles, the Lord Jesus made many claims, and his claims were corroborated. For example... The Lord Jesus made it clear that he had come from God and he was going back to God. You read that in John's Gospel. Many, many different scriptures I could show you uh, to illustrate that. He came from God. He said, I came down from heaven not to do mine own will. Imagine someone standing in front of people, crowds of people, and saying, I'm not from here. I came down from heaven. See, that man isn't quite right. But remember when he met Nicodemus in John chapter 3? What Nicodemus said to him, this religious man. He came to Jesus by night. He probably did that because he was afraid of being discovered. He was a religious Jew and he didn't want people to see that he was interested in the message of Christ at that point. Though later on in his life he openly confessed Christ at the time of his death and then his resurrection. Whenever he came with another man to embalm the body of Jesus he clearly came out in favour of the Lord but at this time he's still searching but when he came to Jesus by night John 3 verse 2 he said unto him Rabbi which means teacher or master we know we know that thou art a teacher come from God why? for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him See, the Lord Jesus was a prophet, mighty in word and deed. And by his works, he proved who he said he was. He claimed to be God manifest in flesh. And when you read the sermon of Peter, there in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, he makes it clear that the Lord Jesus, verse 22, Jesus of Nazareth, He was a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. He said he was from God. He proved that he was from God. But think of some of the other claims Jesus made that corroborate this. John 14.6 I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. What a claim that is for anybody to make. I'm going to stand here, Jesus said, I'm going to tell you, I am the way. I'm not one of the ways. I am the only way. I am the truth. And I am the life. And no man cometh to the Father but by me. What a claim that is. You talk about the exclusive nature of Christianity. There's no room for any other belief, any other faith, any other claim. 
It's all about Christ. Jesus said various other things. He said in John 11.25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoso liveth and believeth in me shall never die. What a claim that is. He said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. I am the true vine. My father is the husbandman, and you're the branches. But I'm the vine. Amazing claims that he made. You know, from the lips of a mere man, such claims would have been blasphemous. And that is, is exactly what Jesus was accused of by his detractors. You turn with me to Matthew, to the chapter 26, and you read from verse 63. Matthew 26, verse 63. But Jesus held his peace, and the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God, that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. Are you the Messiah? Jesus saith unto him, Thou hast said, Nevertheless I say unto you, Hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his clothes, saying, He hath spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold, now ye have heard his blasphemy. So they knew any mere man Claiming these things would be a blasphemer. Now, if such a person as Christ who made those claims died and remained dead, as other men do, then the charge of imposter would stick to him. People would have been able to say he was a liar, he was an imposter, he was a fraud. But he rose again from the dead to vindicate, if you like, to corroborate the truth of his claim that he was from God and that he was the Son of God. There's corroboration in the doctrine of the resurrection. The corroboration of the claims of Christ. There's also declaration. And it really fits with the same thing because the resurrection was necessary to give final proof of the deity of Christ. This is something that he claimed. He claimed to be the Son of God. You can read in John chapter 10, where because of what he said, I am the Son of God, they took up stones to stone him. Why? Because they said, Thou, being a man, makest thyself God. You've spoken blasphemy. He claimed to be God. And that would be a claim that would have to be backed up. And so there is, by the resurrection, this declaration by God that indeed Jesus Christ is God, manifest in flesh. The resurrection was a declaration by the Father, as promised in the Old Testament, that Jesus was his Son. See, there's references in the Old Testament to the Messiah, and one of the references that I can think of uh, that was fulfilled in the New Testament Scriptures in Christ is in the book of Psalms. In the second Psalm, Psalm number 2, and verse 7, I will declare the decree, The Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my Son, this day have I begotten thee. 
That's God's verdict. And when you go over to Acts chapter 13, in verse number 33, there's a reference to this. God hath fulfilled the same unto us their children, in that he hath raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. He's referring to the day of his resurrection. By raising Christ to life again by the power of the Holy Spirit, God the Father marked Christ out as his son. The Son of God, the second person of the glorious Trinity. Paul wrote about that in Romans chapter 4. Or sorry, Romans chapter 1, verse 4. Romans chapter 1, verse 4. And declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. He's declared to be who he said he was by the resurrection. And furthermore, we know that it was impossible for death to keep Christ in its grip. He could not be held in the grave. That's something that Peter preached on the day of Pentecost when he said in Acts chapter 2 and verse 24, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. It wasn't possible for Jesus to stay in the grave if he is God manifest in flesh, which he is. Of God alone could such a claim be justly made as this. So there's corroboration of the claims of Christ. There's declaration that he is the Son of God. Thirdly, there's a necessity for the resurrection because of the matter of vindication. And by that I mean the vindication of his work as well as his words. You see, without the resurrection, we would never know, would we, that the death of Christ had achieved its objective so far as our sin was concerned. How could we know that our sins were gone? How could we know that God had accepted his work? That God was satisfied with his work if he remained dead? If he remained in the tomb? There had to be a vindication. Without the resurrection, the gospel is null and void. We're back again to 1 Corinthians 15. Look at it, verse number 14. And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Without the resurrection, there would be no hope of the forgiveness of sins. Again, verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, ye are yet in your sins. Your sins are not gone. You're still in your sins. Without the resurrection, men would be utterly lost with no possibility of salvation at all. But by the resurrection, the acquittal from every charge of all who believe in Christ is actually declared. There is a vindication of Christ's work by the fact that he was raised from the dead. You know, during the life of Christ, his claims were vindicated 
as I pointed out this morning, by the voice from heaven. The Father confirmed what the Son said. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved Son, hear ye him. But that great work that the Son of God did in his death on the cross had to be vindicated. And it has been by the resurrection. That's why it's necessary. As well as corroboration and declaration and vindication, there's also, following along from this, obviously, salvation. The resurrection is necessary in order that we might experience salvation or that any person might experience salvation. A person who's dead and lying in the grave can't save anyone. There are many religions in this world in which they revere characters who are long since dead. If they have tombs or shrines in their memory, you can visit them. You can go and see where they had their last resting place. All the leaders of the cults, all the leaders of the major world religions, they're all dead. Every one of them. But Christ is not dead. Christ is alive. And the resurrection was necessary in order to provide a solid basis for our faith, for our salvation. You know the Lord Jesus showed himself alive, the Bible tells us, by many infallible proofs. That's the actual uh, phrase that's used in Acts chapter 1 verse 3. He showed himself alive by many infallible proofs. You can look at those proofs. You can see in the scripture those proofs. That he was alive. He appeared to many different people. Again, referring to this morning's message. He referred, uh, or I referred to some 17 people initially who had dealings with the risen Christ. But then that was broadened out to include many, many more. On one occasion, above 500 people at the same time saw the risen Christ. So many people saw him in the flesh. Not only that, but those disciples who were in that upper room... They were able to touch him, to handle him, and to see that he was alive. He challenged them to do so. They thought he was a spirit. They thought he was a ghost. He said, no, I'm not a ghost. Touch me. Handle me and see. A spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as you see me have. And he showed them his hands and his side and his feet. And Thomas actually reached forth his hand. What an amazing thing that is. And actually put his finger into the nail prints. And put his hand into the Savior's side. No wonder he said, my Lord and my God. That was an infallible proof. The Lord stood there and ate before them. He ate fish and bread and some honeycomb in their presence. They saw him alive there on the beach, those seven disciples who were out fishing. They talked to him. He talked to them. They were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And those same disciples went with him onto the Mount Olivet sometime later, and they saw him leaving this earth, the risen Christ. And then even after he went to heaven, there were those who saw him still Stephen, I mentioned that today. Paul, 
or Saul of Tarsus as he was then. He saw the Lord on the road to Damascus. He, he saw him as one born out of due time. John the Beloved in the book of Revelation. He saw him and when he did he fell at his feet as dead. Who was it? It was the risen Christ. He showed himself alive by many infallible proofs. And God's acceptance of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus, his atoning work, is demonstrated by the resurrection as we've already noted. And the resurrection gives our faith substance. Look at Romans chapter 10. There's a little chorus, by the way, that people used to sing. Romans 10 and 9 is a favorite verse of mine. What is Romans 10 verse 9? If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. This is the message of salvation. Believing in a risen Christ, one who is alive. We're not saved by thinking about a memory. We're not saved by considering somebody who once lived but is now dead. We're saved by coming into living, vital union with one who is alive today. That's how you're saved. You come to Christ. You don't merely come to a doctrine. You don't merely come to a history book. You don't come to some account of something that happened long ago. You come to Him. You come to Him. The Lord Jesus comes into your life. In salvation. You come face to face with Christ in the gospel. And as the Bible says, as many as received him, to them give you the power, means the right or the privilege, to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. When you come to Christ, you come not merely to a set of doctrines, you come to a person. The Bible puts it this way, to whom coming? To whom coming? As unto a living stone. We come to one who is alive. The resurrection is necessary to provide a solid basis for our salvation. Again, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 17. If Christ be not raised, if there is no resurrection, your faith is vain, you're yet in your sins. Why is that? Because you've got faith in something that's not here. You've got faith in something that's a mere memory. But when you come to Christ, you come to one who is alive. The resurrection is a necessity. Because without it, there's no salvation. There's corroboration of his claims. A declaration that he's the Son of God. There's vindication of his work. There's salvation through Christ because he's risen. We have a living hope in Christ. Through his resurrection we receive new life. It's the risen life of Christ. We actually are buried with him. We're raised with him spiritually. And we have a living hope regarding our own resurrection in the future. Because the same God who raised up Christ is going to raise up us also. In that great day. And it will be a resurrection of the body. Just like his. But we must move on. 
I've got three more points. The resurrection is necessary because of the matter of demonstration. And the demonstration I'm talking about is that Christ may be known by us today. I've just been articulating that for the last few minutes. You can know Christ personally today. And the Apostle Paul proved the truth of this experience in his own day. That's what he gave testimony to in Acts chapter 26. He did earlier in Acts 22 as well. He talked about his conversion experience. And what happened at his conversion experience? He met somebody. He met somebody. He met Christ. Read Acts chapter 9 and the story is right there. And isn't it a wonderful account? Here's a man who's not on a quest to find Christ. Here's a man who's not uh, feeling that he's got this big hole in his heart that needs to be filled by Christ. No, he doesn't feel that way at all. He's not looking for Christ. He's not interested in Christ. He's looking for Christians that he might kill them. That he might at least put them in prison. That's what he was about that day. That's why he went with letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, the Christian way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound under Jerusalem. And when they were brought to Jerusalem, they would either be imprisoned or killed or both. That's what he was doing that day. But you know what happened? As he journeyed, here's a man who's on his way to do the devil's work. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. Just like that, out of the blue. And he fell to the earth and he heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. That's a reference to goads that cattle would kick their legs against and do themselves damage. That's what Saul was doing by resisting Christ and resisting the gospel. But notice how Jesus makes our cause as the church his cause. He didn't say, Saul, you're persecuting the church. He said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. How could he be persecuting Jesus? Jesus was in heaven. He couldn't touch Jesus. He couldn't put his hands on Jesus. So why did Jesus say, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest? Because men and women, when you touch God's people, you're touching Jesus in that sense. You're touching the apple of his eye. He loves his people. He's united to his people. He's the head. They're the members of the body. And when the body is hurt, it hurts him. I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. That's who you're attacking, Saul. Not just Christians. Not just people who believe my truth. You're attacking me. And what happened? He trembling and astonished said this, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Here's a man who's only interested in the name of Jesus of Nazareth if he can do damage to that name. If he can kill believers who follow after that Jesus of Nazareth. He says it, doesn't he, in Acts 26? I thought with myself that I ought to do many things 
contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, which thing I also did in Jerusalem. And many of the saints did I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them. I punished them oft in every synagogue, compelled them to blaspheme, and being exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them even unto strange cities. He was a madman doing the devil's work until one day Jesus stepped into his life. You talk about an instance of sovereign grace. Away with this nonsense that people choose the Lord whenever they feel like it. That they come to the Lord just whenever you know, it suits them to do so, like turning off and on a faucet. Salvation is of the Lord. And the, the testimony of Saul of Tarsus later to become Paul proves it. This man's not interested in Christianity, just like some of your friends, just like some of your family members, just like a lot of people that I know. They're not a bit interested in Christ. They have no interest in the things of God. But one of these days, if God gets a hold of them, oh, they'll be interested. They'll be interested. And not only will they be interested, they'll come to Christ. They'll be transformed by His grace. They'll become new creatures in Christ. Because that's what God does. I still love to hear my father give his testimony. It was a thrill to me every time I heard it. Because if the Lord had not saved him, I don't know if I would have ever been saved. Some of the people I went around with in school ended up in prison. Some of them became drunks. Some of them got into major, major trouble. Some of them were involved in paramilitary activity because that's what was going on in our country. Young Catholics joining the IRA, young Protestants joining loyalist paramilitaries. That's the kind of environment that I lived in. I knew boys went to school with me who became murderers because they got caught up in the political situation in our country. And that could have been me. That could so easily have been me. And I could see myself doing some of those things because I was so fond and so in love with my country. That I would have done almost anything to preserve it. But God made sure that I was born into a Christian home. When my dad got saved, that changed the trajectory of my life. So I was brought up in the faith. I was brought up hearing the scriptures read. Brought up reading the scriptures. Learning the scriptures. Going to children's meetings. Going to Sunday school. Going to church. I had no time to do anything else on a Sunday. All we did was go to church. Literally, apart from our meals, Sunday morning, Sunday school, Sunday morning, church, Sunday afternoon, Sunday school, Sunday night, church. That's it. Every Lord's Day. Children's meetings three nights a week during the week. Boy, that really must have turned you off Christianity big time, right? No, no it didn't. I'm so thankful that the risen Christ met my father. And a little mission hall where he wept his way to the cross. 
And his life was transformed. And instead of living for Satan, he began to live for God. And you know, friends, it's no secret what God can do. What he's done for others, he'll do for you. With arms wide open, he'll pardon you. It is no secret what God can do. The risen Christ. The resurrection was necessary because it is a demonstration it's a demonstration of what God is able to do in a life Paul proved the truth of the resurrection in his own day when he met the risen Christ and then Paul made the knowledge of Christ and the experience of the power of the resurrection the very objective of his life Read Philippians chapter 3, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings be made conformable unto his death. Something else that the resurrection makes necessary, or the reason why it's necessary, is for confirmation. To give us confirmation, assurance of the final judgment of the world. See, men wrongly condemned Christ. Pilate sat on a throne and condemned Christ. He did as much by turning him over to the people. But God the Father vindicated him by raising him from the dead, thereby judging those who dealt with Christ falsely. See, there's coming a day when the roles will be reversed. It'll not be Pilate on the throne and Jesus standing in front of him. It'll be Jesus on the throne and Pilate standing in front of him. And all men will give an account of themselves to God. Who will they give account to? The risen Christ. Remember the message that Paul preached at Athens? He talked about the judgment of God. But notice how he mentioned this. Acts chapter 17 and verse 31. This is a remarkable statement. Verse 30 says, The times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Why? Because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. Now watch this. Whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. The resurrection of the dead is proof positive that there will be a judgment. Now, of course, that message was one that was mocked. Acts 17.32 says, When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. People still do that. And others said, We will hear thee again of this matter. Some people do that procrastinate, we'll put it off, we'll think about it some other time. Howbeit, certain men clave unto him and believed, among the which was Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Thank God there were those who believed in the message of the resurrection and in the message of Christ. The resurrection is a confirmation of the just judgment of the world. And there's one final thought. Not only is there a matter of corroboration and declaration and vindication and salvation and demonstration and confirmation. 
But there's also the matter of illustration. The resurrection, it was necessary to illustrate this simple truth. That God always has the last word. God always has the last word. And I think of that whenever I hear people making blasphemous statements. Whether it be from a political podium or from a church pulpit. I always think God will have the last word. The Lord will have the last word. During his lifetime... Men called the Lord Jesus Christ a deceiver. What will this deceiver say? God the Father by the resurrection declared him to be my son. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He's declared to be the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. God will have the last word. And so, though there are people who will deny the resurrection, sadly, even churchmen among them, some years ago, in the Church of England, the Anglican Communion, there was a bishop. He was called the Bishop of Durham, David Jenkins. He used to delight every Easter in stirring people up by saying that he didn't believe in the resurrection. There was no such thing. In fact, on one occasion, he blasphemously said on public media, the resurrection is some kind of a conjuring trick involving bones. Well, David Jenkins is now dead. I don't know, but I don't believe he ever repented to his dying day. And now he knows. And God has the last word. You know, there's one with whom we have to do. Our God, Hebrews says, is a consuming fire. And it also says there, it is a fearful thing. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Thank God for the risen Christ. The one who is able to save to the uttermost all that come unto God by him. Even the most hardened And wicked sinners who are out to do despite to the gospel, the Lord is able to save. That's one thing that the the story of Saul of Tarsus teaches us. Don't despair of anyone. Don't be thinking, well, there's somebody, he'll never be saved. Or there's somebody, she'll never be saved. Because God always has the last word. And he's able to save to the uttermost all that come unto God. By Christ. May the Lord bless his word to our hearts for his own glory.